Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the Marketers Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome along to a special edition of the Football Insomniac. I'm your host Colin Watt and I'm delighted to be joined today by a very special guest. He is a Champions League winner, a two-time Hall of Famer at both Norwich City and the Scottish Hall of Fame. It is Mr Lambo himself, Paul Lambert. How are you doing, Paul? I'm alright. I'm, uh, 
I'm doing well. I'm 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 enjoying the I'm enjoying everything at the minute, so I've got no no problems anywhere. And we were just discussing before we came on air, it's, we're recording this just as the lockdown restrictions are easing and we're hoping that over the next couple of months or so we'll start seeing fans back in football and life returning to a bit of normality. Well, I think that's important for sport in general. I think general sport needs the needs fans because without it you don't really have a, have a sport really. It's a different game where it be football, golf, tennis, and rugby. You need an adrenaline rush from the support and I'm pretty sure all major sports that play they, they need the fans in especially football because it's a it's an emotional game and I think it's certainly will be more welcomed when, they, when everybody does come back and over the course of this interview we're going to touch a lot on Paul's career both um, his club career and also his management career and also his time as part of the Scottish national team as I mentioned previously he is a Scottish Hall of Famer um, and that's an incredible achievement uh, Paul you obviously you were inducted into the Hall of Fame that must have kind of been special for you when you found out that was going to happen I think the, the, when you get the kind of accolades it's always it's always nice but you also played in good teams that helped and I played with some really great players that helped me along that along that pathway and when you get an induction it's always an honour to get in and being from Scotland which is not a lot a lot of population or a massive country by any stretch and um, the players are probably that have followed into it as well which have been which, which have been great and um, yeah, from from getting it from your own country is a special thing. I think that's that's the beauty of it. When it's your own country, I think it it means an awful lot to you. And we're going to discuss the kind of pathway to you actually getting into the Hall of Fame. And it starts way back as a young lad growing up in the small town of Linwood. What was mm. that experience like? We always part of the school team. We always kind of playing football as much as you could. Yeah, well, I was I was actually born in Duke Street, just a stone's throw away from from Celtic Park. And, my mum and dad were, were uh, living in Dilmarnock, just around the corner from Parkhead. So, and then we moved out to Linwood when we were younger. Because in, in those days, I think my mum and dad, they had an outside toilet in those days. <laughs> so so uh, they had to move. And, uh, and obviously I was born there, so the house was too small, so we had to move. And uh, we moved to Linwood. And, and Linwood a, was a really buoyant area because of the Chrysler car plant. Mm-hmm. That was that was massive for Limbo. And when that went when that went downhill, it, it really hurt hurt Limbo as a whole. But I was really fortunate that at that time there was uh, street football, like probably you don't see now. Mm-hmm. So my street, yeah. my street would play other streets in the vicinity, and it was it could become twelve aside, fifteen aside, eight aside. It could become like that. And I, I played with guys that were a lot older than me at, at that time. So. Um, that's when I kind of still started to kind of really get into football where my dad and that, my mum were quite sportive and they, they helped me along the way. Without my mum and dad, when they have the career I had, probably that's because mm-hmm. they were really sporty as well. So, And then I get street football and then boys club level came on the scene when I was seven. And then um, limited a five-a-side tournament. And the, the guy that ran it actually became my boys club manager. And he was brilliant, and um, he was actually a policeman as well. Believe it or not, he was a policeman. But he, <laughs> again, there's a lot of people I could thank for my own career, and he was certainly one of them because he he kept me on the straight and narrow. He ran the school team and he ran the boys club team, and he 
set up the, the Limerick Police 5 sides, which was a, it used to be, it was an incredible tournament how we set up that. And then, and then that's how it kind of really started to go, you know, it really started to go from there. So I really started when I was, I was probably seven uh, on that side of it. And as you mentioned, coming up through the boys' club, you were eventually then picked up by St Mirren at quite a young age. What, how did that come about? Were they scouting you from for a couple of months, or was it just a case of something came along one day? Uh, I, we, were play, we were playing for the boys' club at that time, and uh, we were playing Barhead Boys' Club, and they were a good side at that time. It was always us and them that were like rivals as such, and they had a good side. And um, we played them in the Scottish Cup. Uh, the Scottish Cup at that age level it was uh, and our manager at the time there was two pictures in, um, in Limited at that time it was in a school called Moss Edge which, small, which was my old primary school mm-hmm. it was a big pitch and a small pitch and our manager actually chose to play them on the small pitch because it gave us a bigger advantage and that's how clever he was and uh, we beat I think we beat them 2-0 and we never knew but there was always a crowd at these sort of games mm-hmm. Never knew who was watching or anything like that. And then I think it was a, maybe a couple of weeks later, we got a call to say we could be going to some money on trial and, uh, on a Thursday night. And um, Rick McFallum was the manager at that time. And uh, Eric Sorison uh, was, was the coach. And um, we went into St. Murray on, on a Thursday night. And the first night we went there, there was no other young players there. And uh, we got our nights mixed up. And believe it or not, believe it or not, Stevie Clark and Dougie Sumner were in, they were in part time, Stevie and, mm-hmm. uh, and Dougie. And uh, you, I don't know if you remember, but Love Street used to have a big running track around it. Yes. Yep. And a big area behind the, the, the visiting end. Mm-hmm. And Stevie and Dougie took myself and a guy called Noddy McWhorter and uh, to play two aside against them out in the back <laughs> in Love Street. And uh, we couldn't get a kick of the ball. That, that was it. And we were only 12 at that time, 12 or 13. And it wasn't, we got word to go back in the following Thursday. And all of a sudden, there was loads of kids from, maybe from Renfrew, from Greenock, from Linwood, from Barhead, from every, everywhere in the, in the area, from Porso, from Easter Craigs. So we had a load of, a load of kids in there. And um, so we were playing, uh, they were playing final at the time and uh, I went to the game and Johan Cruyff was playing mm-hmm. that night and then the first leg and someone went on the second leg and it wasn't long after that Ricky McFarlane resigned from St Mum <clears throat> and um, so we, we didn't know what we were doing we were just told to keep coming in on a Thursday night to train mm-hmm. and you could have went in the following Thursday and there would be other different kids there if, if they didn't like you, they would say, thanks very much, see you later. Mm-hmm. And the other guys coming in. So St. Martin pointed Alec Muller, Martin Ferguson and Drew Jarvie um, to do it. And I think that was the biggest turning point in my career. Of, and I always say, thank God they three were there when, 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 when we were growing up because they, they never let us... Move. They kept an eye on us. They kept they kept us on the straight and narrow. They kept us mm-hmm. in good habits. They got us a game understanding, which is really really important. It's not about skills, tricks, and everything. You, you need to know the game and positional things where you need to go. And and Alec Muller, Martin Ferguson, Joe Jarvie, owe a hell of a lot to because they 
they gave me the good habits. And you see that a lot nowadays. There's a lot of kids that join the pro youth teams at the likes of 8, 9, 10, 11. And it's always the fans' dream to see people coming right through the system, right in and breaking into the first team, which is exactly what you did under the manager of Alex Smith. Now, a lot has been said about how he has been a sort of father figure for Scottish football for a, a lot of talent that he's brought through. Do you think he actually gets enough credit for the players he brought through? Because it was almost a, a complete generation under him. No, no, it was, but it was Alec Miller, really, for me, that, that and Martin Ferguson and Drew Jarvey. They were the three that... Alec Miller gave me my debut when I was 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Again, my first professional league game was against Motherwell, and he put me on, and they were going to beat one now when I went on. And for some reason, I, I kind of turned the game, and it's month's favour, and went 2-1. And uh, he put me on the bench at Dumbarton, at Old Dumbarton, when I was 15 in a friendly, when I was 15. Then he gave me my debut when I was 16. And he, he kept me in, in the realms of that. And he, he gave me my debut we, um, against Aberdeen. We, we played the love sheet and we drew one each and I scored. Mm-hmm. And right back was Stevie Clark at the time. Stevie was playing right, right back. And, I was, and I, 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 was, I was Stevie's kind of boot boy at that time as well. <laughs> and, uh, and Stevie played behind me. And um, I think Frank McGarvey played as well. Tony Fitzpatrick played. Really good players. Mm-hmm. That I played with and um, and then Alec went to um, he went to Hibs and Martin and um, they all went, which was a which was a blow for me because I I, I didn't know what to expect next. I thought, well, these guys are away. And then Alex Smith came in and he took it on again. He took it again and looked after us the same way Alec Muller did and. And was great with us. He, he was for every bit as good as Alec Muller was. Alex Smith was up there with him because he kept he kept us on the discipline role and the the jobs that we had to do and the ground staff where we had to do everything when the ground staff, which was which was so important to learn. And plus, I played reserve football against men, and I never played what you see now academy football where you play against your own age. I was, if I was playing with reserves, I'd play at 15 and I'd play against a guy who's 27 or 28 and all, all those sort of things. So I, I played against a guy called Ralph Callaghan at Hibs and he was a season pro and gave me an absolute roasting. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 15, I was at Easter Road. But what a learning club it was because it, it brought me into good habits and it made me grow really, really quickly. And that's why I think at that time, playing against men brought me on a lot quicker than what it probably does nowadays. Do you think that's part of the, the problem in Scottish yeah. football at the minute is the lack of this reserve football? It's all about development sides and maybe one over 23 playing. But back in those days, it was if you were coming back into the squad, if you weren't playing on the Saturday, you were playing in the reserves. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, 100%. And I know people have got their own opinion of it, but that's my opinion of it. Without that development and playing against grown men at that time, I, I wouldn't have had a career. Because I needed, you needed to be thrown around and you need to realise you're in a professional sport you had to win whereas maybe now the academy football is all development and they take away the winning aspect where, whereas you had to win because professional sports are the winning and if you can get a title or a trophy at the end it then brilliant if you don't then it's no probably where you want to take your career to go you need to win things and I think mm-hmm. that's important that people went away from that whereas growing up I was getting kicked around and thrown around with older men 
and then you know how to handle yourself as you get older. Whereas, um, uh, yeah, now maybe it's just a little bit different from from when I was growing up. And that's obviously put you in good stead because still, whilst you were young, you were part of what is one of St Mirren's greatest achievements in winning the Scottish Cup back in 87. What did that do to the club as a whole? Did it kind of instil this belief that you could go on and achieve even more? I think it was a brilliant thing, but I think I think it became a burden to them and it held them mm-hmm. back. I think the where I think it became fantastic for, was for the town, uh, a Paisley itself. For, for the prestige of the club and for the history of the club, it, it became an incredible thing. But also think people in the hierarchy get too ahead of themselves and think, oh, we've arrived and this is what's going to happen and we're going to do this and that. And all of a sudden, it went in a downhill spiral. It never it never materialised to what it... I'm not going to say someone was ever going to be a, a massive club. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct-to-Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. But it should have been a club where it was it was just under that, that yeah. level of maybe hearts and hubs. Because the town was the big, I think it's the biggest town in Scotland. I think Paisley. So, yeah, it it became it became an unbelievable thing to do, but I also think it held the football club back because I think people in the hierarchy definitely thought, well, that's what arrived, and we took it out. I think the club took the eye off the ball, and um, not long after that, and, and too many managerial changes. Alex Smith goes, and it, it, it was it just never stabilised from it. And you stayed at the club for eight seasons, I believe, as well. Was there ever a point during that time where an opportunity arose for you to leave the club to maybe go to somewhere bigger or somewhere else? Well, I went to speak to um, John McLean at Dundee United. So I played in the I played in the Scottish Centenary team against um, Scott, the, the Scotland team at Hamden, mm-hmm. um, and we won one 0 We made a really good side at that that time. And um, John McLean picked me at that time. He was a manager. And um, he he came in uh, for me uh, to go. So I went up to speak to him at Canada's and the season was starting on the Saturday. And he asked me to go up and see him on the, on the Thursday. So I went up and seen him and, uh, and he told me how it was. This is it, this is it, this is it. But he only gave me a day to decide. He said, I've got one, you've got one day to decide whether you want to come or not. So I travelled back to, to my parents and... Uh, my dad said, what are you going to do? I said, Dad, I don't know. And he said, go with your gut feeling. And I got up in the morning and I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sign. So I was in the summer and I had a suit on and all that. I think Jimmy Bourne was manager at the time. And mm-hmm. I was going to tell Jimmy that I was going to leave. And then um, I go to Love Street and Jimmy says, what, what's your answer? What are you going to do? And I went, I don't know. So I went from my house to Love Street thinking I'm going to go. As soon as I hit Love Street, I think Almost you know, changed your mind right away. 
Aye, and Jimmy, Jimmy actually says it. As I said, Lofty had a big kind of running track, gravel bit around the pitch, and he says, why don't you go and just do a, a walk around the, around, the, around the pitch? Come back in and tell me your answer. So I done that, walked around the pitch, and I came back into the TC Jimmy, he says, what are you going to do? So I'm not going. And that, and that was my decision, to, to uh, not to go. So I stayed with Motherwell maybe, I don't know, maybe a few more weeks after that, and then Tommy McLean came in and, I decided I was going, uh, I went to Motherwell. And as you said, you, you made the move to Motherwell after eight fantastic years at St Mirren, mm-hmm. winning the Scottish Cup. You kind of, one of your first experiences uh, getting there is the time you're playing against what would then become one of your next moves is Borussia Dortmund in the UEFA Cup. Mm-hmm. Now you've moved from St, St Mirren to Motherwell, you're playing in the UEFA Cup. Did you think that one day you could actually get to that level? <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's a funny thing because um, we, 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 the first leg was in Dortmund, and um, uh, I, I, the time when Sky first came on the scene, I, I used to watch German football, and it was a Friday night, and there was a program called Sat Eins, and Sat Eins was always Bundesliga Friday night games. Mm-hmm. So I always used to watch it and I always used to see the atmospheres and think, dear, dear, look at the atmospheres there. <laughs> and, uh, and my son was due to get born and um, mother will get drawn with Bruce O'Donnell away. And uh, I said to Alec McLeish, I said, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not coming. Uh, if my son's not born, I want to be there and see my son being born. So he went, OK, no problem. Because obviously Tom McLean was a man before, he was brilliant. And mother at that time had a really, really good side really good side under Tom McLean mm-hmm. and, and God rest him a lot of guys have died at that team that I played in. and um, uh, guys that had so much uh, joy we were playing with uh, they had Jamie Dolan Phil O'Donnell David Cooper uh, incredible players and um, Paul McGrillan uh, really sad but they, we had a really good side at that time and, and we got drawn against Motherwell and uh, against Dortmund at that. and I said to Ali I said I'm not going to come I said, if my son's not born, and uh, he was born just before the, maybe two days before the team flew out to Dortmund, and then we um, we played the game, and I had one of the games where I had a really good game. But I remember doing the warm down with Billy Davis. Mm-hmm. Two years like that, my God, imagine playing in front of this crowd every That's true. And three years later, I ended up playing there. There was a player that you mentioned and you sadly spoke about the fact that some of that team that you played with are, are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to kind of touch on Paul McGrillan. Now, he was sent off in the, the second leg of that game um, and then he lost his battle, sadly, with the mental health aspect. When you look at football nowadays and you look at the abuse that players are getting, can you see why it, like football really does need to act in this terms of mental health and help players out? I think it's a terrible thing. I think the the guys that I played with, Paul, Phil, Jamie, David Cooper, um, really sad, really sad what happened there. Um, guys were a bit more in age. Obviously, Cooper's a bit, a bit older. But really, really sad. And mental health is a, is a massive, massive thing in, in the world, let alone football. And then um, one thing about being a footballer, you have to be really mentally strong. I don't do 
really social media at all. I don't go near it. I don't touch it. I don't. I, I'm not interested in that. To be, to mm-hmm. be perfectly honest with you, um, I know that's the way of the world. And, and um, but when you see what's happening in the world, with what this abuse to people, you're you're getting into arguments with people you don't even know, and who hide behind these things. And uh, I really think it's not a nice place to to go into with that. As a footballer, I was always brought up to play the game, never really getting broiled with any praise or negativity. I always stayed in a flat level with it. And um, that's the way I've loved my life, really. So I, I came from a generation where it was never prominent. I know it's the way of the world now, but the, the, the football people, players, especially ones who maybe don't make a lot of money out of the game and finish football at 35 and they don't have a career or the finances to support themselves or their families or yeah, that is tough. That is really tough. And if there can be more to be done, yeah, then it's it's a great thing to for people to look at. But it's no it's no social media and that for for me is not a great yeah it's not a great um, communication level. You know? And obviously, just touching on Paul again, he sadly did pass away. What was your memories of playing alongside him? He was one that I think was kind of underrated amongst that team, wasn't he? I, that era or that time, mother was I said four lads. Coop was just leaving. Um, mother and I came in and played a few games with him. Father Donald had a great time with um, great player, played with Celtic, great player. Unbelievable fitness, Father Donald, incredible mm-hmm. fitness. Jamie Dolan was was a brilliant guy, just a really honest pro, good guy, no any problems. It was a great player to play, a very underrated player. And Paul McGrillan was probably one of the life and so with the dressing room. The way he was, it, it was so chirpy and bouncing in and banter and, and, and all good things like that. And a really good footballer, really, really good finisher, Paul McGrillan. And, um, but what you see sometimes in a dressing room, you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. And, and But Paul, you've never ever thought for one minute that would have happened there. It was just so, so sad. So, so sad. But life and soul addressing them, that's for sure. And as in, if anyone is watching right now and they are going through their own personal struggles, then do reach out. There is people that will be there that want to help you. Um, it is, it's a problem across the whole of the UK that needs to be resolved. And if uh, if anyone does need their help, then please do reach out to the, the right authorities and you'll get what you need. I think that's important. Um, I think that's the important thing you're saying there. I think the, the important thing is, is speak. Speak to people that can help you. Don't hide behind it. Just, just speak to people. I think that's, that's the best bit of advice is, is don't ball up yourself, you know. it's um, Yeah, I think that's really, really important going forward. Yeah, I think this, this whole pandemic's made the mental health crisis across the world a lot worse. Um, and those that were struggling before have, have made it even harder on themselves at times. And I think, that, as you said, the most important thing is to reach out, to speak out, mm-hmm. and people will listen to you. Um, so if you are in that situation, please do get the help that you need. Yeah. Um, so moving on, obviously three years at Motherwell, um, three fantastic seasons, a Cup finishing third as well. And then you, you kind of leave and you've got trials of PSV and Dortmund. How did those come around? Uh, well, so I was coming out of contact with Mullow and, and 
Brad McKinnon, who, who was another really great fullback at Motherwell at that time, signed for 20 inch and in the summer. And that was when the, um, the Bosman rolling was kicking in. Mm-hmm. And um, Brad phoned me one day and said, an agent wants your number. Uh, will you speak to him? I said, yeah, yeah. So a, a guy called Tom Van Dalen phoned me. And um, I never knew Tom at all. I never met him. And he says, Paul, do you want to go and try it abroad? I mean, yeah, that'd be great. He said, well, give me 10 days and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll see if I can get something for you. And sure enough, 10 days he phoned me. He says, Paul, um, what's your plan? He said, well, mother, we're going to Northampton in pre-season tomorrow. He says, um, pack your bags and come over to Holland. So anyway, I done it. Never told mother where I was going. Packed a bag, jumped in a flight to, to Amsterdam and a, a, a flight to Enschede. And I, I never knew Tom. And I went over there and this guy standing with a placard, Paul Lambert. So he's Tom for the first time. He said, nice to meet you. He said, I'll tell you where you're going. You're going to PS Feintover and if that doesn't work, then you're going to Bishop Dortmund. I went, well, dear, oh dear. Never, <laughs> never expected this. So I went to Eindhoven and I stayed five days and and Dick, Dick Advocate was a coach. Mm-hmm. But Eindhoven had a really good side of that thing. So I played two games and um, scored two goals, but I played in the right wing and I was never a winger. Never, I never the speed for that. And uh, Dick came up to my room and he said, Paul, he said, I know you're going to Bishop Dortmund. Good luck. Hope it works. And uh, Tony and I jumped in the car, drove to Dortmund. Tony and, and Michael Meyer had, had done a deal. Mm-hmm. If the trials went well, the deal was already there. If it didn't go well, I went back, back to Scotland and God knows what I'd have done. And then... Um, uh, went and meet the Dortmund guys in a mini tournament um, and I realised then I was in big time football because I've never seen a support like that in a friendly so yeah that's how it kind of came about played four trial games and then they asked me to sign and then that was me and it was it was, it was probably the, the career defining moment really which turned my whole career upside down you, you just mentioned that you don't know what you would have done if the Dortmund trial mm-hmm didn't go well yeah. was there any other options on the table in Scotland or England or was that a case of is PSV Dor- uh, Dortmund or back to Motherwell yeah and, and, and Motherwell wouldn't have been a shoo-in because Motherwell didn't know where I was mm-hmm. I, I never told them at that time I was taking the, the Bosman and, um, and um, it's a strange thing because John Mark Bosman I actually spoke to him just about a month or two ago and and uh, because I, I saw the documentary on him on, on uh, BT Sport mm-hmm. and, I, and I tracked his number down I got a hold of his number and I actually uh, done a Zoom call with him because I was one of the first ones to take it on mm-hmm. and, um, it was a brilliant conversation I had with him uh, at, at that time so I never realised the extent of what he'd done and I don't think anybody does realise until you watch the documentary then you think what the guy put himself through and, and, and basically I just wanted to thank him really for doing it because it turned mm-hmm. my career, my fortune upside down, really. So it's a big thing for 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 him to have took took the world of football on, and um, so it was a nice nice conversation. So, but nobody ever knew where I was. Mother never knew. Probably the first time Mother knew is when I signed. That's when we knew. Mm-hmm. And there was no other options on the table in Scotland or in, in England no, at that point. No, no nothing, nothing. No, absolutely nothing. No, so I was. It was like taking a 10 pence over there and throwing it in the air and catching and saying, take your gamble and hopefully it works, you know. 
So you're moving and making that move even now from Motherwell to Borussia Dortmund would be incredible. Yeah. But back then it was just as big. What was your expectations when you signed the deal? Were you thinking it's going to take me a wee while to get used to the football over here? I'll try and get the odd minutes here and there. Are we expecting just to kind of continue your development? When I went over there and I seen the players, no. Did I think I was ever going to walk into the team or did I ever think I was going to start? Did I ever think I was going to make the bench? Never. Because they had guys that won World Cups, guys that won Serie A, guys that won Bundesliga titles. They had Brazilian internationals there, the European footballer there, the, the, half the German national team were there. And I thought, well, well look, one thing I'm going to do is going to go learn. I'm going to go and learn what what it is like over here. And that was my mindset. And we trained on a Thursday. And um, Pablo Sosa, Pablo had just signed from, from Juve mm-hmm. for 7 million, Do- uh, 7 million Deutschmarks at that time. And then Paolo just won the Champions League the season before. So Paolo came in and and, um, and Otmar came up and said that if Paolo's knees not, doesn't hold up for Saturday's game against Bayer Leverkusen, then you play. So I thought, uh, OK. And the first half was an absolute disaster. I was up against a guy called Paolo Sergio who he, he ran me ragged. And, but just by pure luck, I scored just before half time, so that gave me a little bit of confidence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember getting to half time. I said to Andy, well, Andy, what's right? What's left? What's man on? What's time? So I never knew the German language in football terms. And it was like a little when the game was was just bypassing me really by. And I went, anyway, we lost the game 4 2. And uh, we played for two and a half on Tuesday night. And Otmar came up, come up to me on the Monday and said, Paul, he said, he said, I was happy with you, but if Paul was fit, I'm going to put you on the bench against Dusseldorf. I said, OK, no problem. It's, it's, no, it's no an issue. Mm-hmm. We're training Tuesday morning, Paul's knee doesn't hold up. He puts me back in, and I've won the games where I could have closed my eyes and the ball was going where I wanted to go. <laughs> I set up two goals, and everything worked. It went pitch perfect. And from that from that moment, it just went boof like that. And then I never, I never missed a game, really. It's almost as if you were playing FIFA on the PlayStation. It was just everything was going perfectly. I, I was never just clicked. The 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 team, the support, we made the, the the individual players, the, the dressing room, the camaraderie we had, the, the coach we had, the the fan base we had. Everything was just. And as the season went on, I realised I was playing for a special team, mm-hmm. really really special team as the season went on. You mentioned just before that that you kind of went over there to add to your learning experience and it's something that we've seen in more recent times with a lot of young Scottish players heading over there Bayern Munich have certainly picked a couple up and even the English players guys like Jaden Sancho, Jude Bellingham all making that move across to Germany what is it about the German football that attracts these young talents to go over there to aid their development? Well I think if you if Bellingham and Sancho for example who go to, who go to more club Dortmund Sancho's played in front of the crowd so he not know how special a club it is Bellingham is not but playing terrifically well I think he'll see the full the, the full size of the club once the crowd starts to come back in but he's playing absolutely fantastic at the minute I think the development of them is, is great they, when I went there all the years ago I had to learn the language through the dressing room whereas now they have teachers and classrooms and things like that it's a different a different thing so they probably get a little bit more luxury that way whereas I went in and I had to learn everything as I went through it the language the 
everything. With it, so that that was that was a learning curve on its own, just trying to get the language right. But now English is so universal, mm-hmm. everybody speaks it. So I'm pretty sure that the dressing room at Dortmund at minute, a lot of English speaking lads there. Mm-hmm. I went in there. You had guys that spoke English, but you also had guys that, that didn't really speak English. So and you had to learn what was going on around about you. So the language for me was one of the most important aspects you had to get. On the kind of aspect of Sancho and Bellingham and even um, ex-Celtic youth players like Liam Morrison going to Bayern Munich, do these players look at it as there's a better chance of making the first team by going to Germany than staying at their clubs here in the UK? No, if you're going to Bayern Munich and Dortmund, I don't think. Do you a question I get asked a lot? Do, do I think the, the young players get, I think it's great if you get the right club, you get the right mm-hmm. coach, you get the right players... If you go to a club where maybe you think, well, I'm not going to get a game or am I going to be in the squad or I'm not going to be in the squad, that become difficult because you want to play. You want to play. I went over in an era where, as I said to you, four guys won titles left, right and centre. World Cups, winners, European Champions League winners, Euro 96 winners, Serie A title winners. I had guys that were riddled with success. Mm-hmm. And I, and I had to find that bracket of can I do it with them? And I have to really, really be strong with it. And then mine just went from there where the team in Dortmund at the minute is full of young players and they're trying to strive to these overhaul Bayern. But you look at Bayern, it's a strong, strong team. But if you come from Scotland or England and trying to force your way into these sort of teams at the minute is, is, is really tough. Unless you're probably an exceptional talent like Bellingham and Sancho mm-hmm. and I mentioned in your intro you're a Champions League winner and that came during your time at Borussia mm-hmm. Dortmund coming up to that final you were kind of tasked with marking who was probably the best player in the world at that time in Zinedine Zidane I don't think it was expected that Dortmund would go on and win that game but and I'm not just saying this because you're here, but a lot of people have said that you put in a fantastic man of the match performance in that game. Um, t- talk us through the kind of build up to and the game itself. Is it best? Is it one of your greatest memories from playing football? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Coming from Glasgow and a small part in, in, in Scotland and being in a in a in the company of great great players to win the. the European Cup stroke Champions League it is an incredible honour and to play against Juve in the final arguably against one of the greatest teams in the last 20-30 years Juve at that time Zidane Delivio Deschamps Del Piero Christian Vieri Alan Bosses unbelievable team Juve and um, we obviously playing in Munich was a great thing for us, I played the music, but it, it wasn't as hard as what people actually portray it. it, it it's a difficult question because Dan is, is a, was an unbelievable player. He was so early with both feet and he's a tall man as well. And um, I've met him since the final, you know, and we, we had a chat and uh, uh, when I saw him at Real Madrid. So, um, uh, incredible player. But I was used to that role because I played against Mehmet Scholl, Stefan Effenberg, Hoggy Haji, uh, Hassler, 
all great number tens their own right. I played Rivaldo. All these. I, I knew the role that that, mm-hmm. that it consisted. Uh, where you had to do it against the Dan was probably unbelievable discipline. Where where he was in the pitch. So if the ball, for example, was away on the left side and he drifted to the right. You had to forget the ball and look where he was because you know if he got it in a space where he could hurt you, you were in trouble. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I was used to that. That's not to say it wasn't a tough game and keep my eye on him, but I was used to that role of doing that. And it, I said everything just went went my way that night. And obviously you became the first British player in a non-British side to win the Champions League. That's something that everyone will be talking about in pub quizzes for years to come. Probably quite a few people's had that question in a pub quiz over lockdown, but <laughs> it's a kind of special way to look back on your career with that. What, do, what have you done with the winner's medal? Have you still got it? I've still got it, yeah. I've still, I've still um, yeah, it's in a cabinet. I never, had, I never ever had anything on show um, up until maybe a year ago. I used to just keep everything away, really. But um, now as I got probably a bit older, I thought, okay, bring bring the things out that, I'd, that I've achieved. And yeah, it surprises me how much I've achieved because I never realised what I'd actually done until I actually pulled everything out, really. I don't know, I think if it was me and I'd won the Champions League, I'd have it on the mantelpiece with all the arrows pointing to it, just, just for anybody that walked in the house just to say, yeah, I'd won that, do you know? Aye. No, it, 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 you know, it's, I never really talk about it until people like you guys ask me about it, because I think it's on your memory, you know, I, I don't need to portray what I've won, or I don't need to say because people obviously know, so people don't want to hear my... Well, maybe they do. Don't want to give my, my, my lifestyle, I guess. No, I think they definitely want to hear about the time you won the Champions League. And there's more trophies that we're going to talk about as well. And that comes from your transfer to Celtic. So you moved to Celtic in the November after winning the Champions League. How did that come about? How did you go from winning the Champions League to returning back to Scottish football? Well, there were so many factors. My son wasn't keeping well. And then. Um, there was loads of teams come in for me after the Champions League final. Loads, loads in Europe, and then I turned everybody down because I, I was so happy in Dortmund. It was an unbelievable club. I was, I was actually loved by the supporters, and, and I love playing with the club. I love the club still because it's the way the way it is. I've been back on numerous occasions. A special club, Bishop Dortmund, and, and if you, it's very difficult when you're there. It's a, it really attracts you. To it. and um, the, the clubs I, I turned down were massive clubs to turn down. I didn't want to move at all, whether it be Celtic, whether it be UV or whatever, Bayern or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then um, never wanted to do it. And um, my son took no well, and we spoke to the daughters, and, and he was only two at the time. And this could last, this thing he had could last until he was five or six. And I thought, this is going to be too difficult here. And, we decided, Celtic asked me to come back before, and I said no. And before, Bim Jansen actually called me in Aberdeen book room in Scotland, we're playing in Belarus because Hampton was getting revamped. Yep. And uh, Vim said, Can you just give me one more chance to see it? I know you didn't want to come. And then, then this kind of started to go from there, and I made the choice to come back. But it was. It was really difficult to come back because Dortmund gave me everything. And the emotion in my last game at Dortmund was, I never expected that with the fans and what actually they'd done. With, them, with no leaving the stadium and banners everywhere and 
It was, it was just a horrible thing to leave. And for two months at Celtic, I couldn't, I couldn't kick my own backside. It was terrible because the emotion in my head was still in Dortmund and everything was going on. And all of a sudden, it started to pick up. And we came back, well, I came back in a season where the pressure was probably yeah, massive, massive pressure. Yeah, you, you speak about that massive pressure. It was the, the pressure of stopping Rangers from winning their 10th consecutive league title in a row. And the kind of players that you played alongside there as well. You mentioned someone before, Phil O'Donnell, who was a fantastic player. Did that kind of... How was that jump for you going from playing in the Bundesliga? You said for two months you couldn't kick your, back, your own backside. Is that just the, the difference in football? Was it the mind still being in Germany? Or was it actually the pressure of that season coming onto it as well? Bit of a combination of the three? No, the football was easy. Easy. That, that was easy. That was, that was um, the emotion that uh, what the fans done for me at Dortmund was, was incredible. I mean, I I never expected that last game against Palmer where, uh, I don't know, 60,000 people, 70,000 people don't leave the stadium sing your name and have banners everywhere and people were crying at my car, don't go and things like that. It was just a horrendous thing. And um, then going from Bush or Dortmund to Trinity Celtic was easy. It was easy. But on that one, a footballing sense, that was the pressure of it. Absolutely love because Dortmund gave me that high pressure octane of we have to win, we have to win trophies or the Bundesliga or the Champions League, we have to we have to win. So Granite Celtic was easy to play football. Uh, the guys that I played with, a lot of them I knew with the Scottish team, the national team, so that that was easy. The pressure tried to stop a really good Rangers side at that time was what it was. That was never going to change. That that was the pressure. We just had to stay in our coattails probably and. and Try and overturn that ten in a row. So, going in there, what I'd done with Bishop Dortmund, it didn't matter who I played against. I knew I could, I knew I could handle more. And obviously, as we mentioned, that is the season that Celtic stopped what um, Rangers won in ten consecutive league titles in a row. And there'll be a lot of highlights from that season. But most Celtic fans would probably say, if it isn't the last day of the season, it was the goal in the, the Derby game at New Year the 25 yard strike every Celtic fan you talk to says it's 25 yards it's 30 yards it's 35 yards yeah. what was going through your head during that point is it just a case I hit it and let's hope it goes in or did you know so the second you left your boot that's it I've scored nah, I, knew, I knew as soon as I struck it I was going because um, <laughs> uh, um, Craig scored Craig Burley scored the first goal and Jackie Jackie done brilliant for him and uh, he reverses it and Craig scores a great goal and Craig was on Incredible goal scoring form that that year, and um, uh, we knew we had to win. We had to win that game to pull them back. Rangers were a good side that time. Golf, Gorham, McCoy, Gaza, Loud, they were all there. They were a proper side. Ian Ferguson, they were playing with Ferguson, man. And uh, when when I think maybe I don't think it was Fergie miskicked it actually, and it just dropped him. It was on the, it was on the half volley, and I thought I'm going to hit this. And I just, as soon as I left my foot, I thought, Andy's not getting it because the ball <laughs> I, I had the bend on it, you know, it, it never went straight. It just it had the bend on it when it ran. I thought, it's going in. And, and then, and as you say, that, that's probably the goal that people still talk about, really, to this, this kind of day when they speak to me, really. And then obviously the last day drama of stopping Rangers winning the 10 in a row. Henrik mm. kind of sets the tone really early on with the goal and then Harold kind of wraps it up. 
Was mm. there a, a sense of relief or was it more just the, the passion and the celebration of winning the title when the kind of final whistle goes? I think everything, the relief, the, the, the achievement of stopping that, that because Vim Janssen probably doesn't get the credit deserved on it because he's one season at it and to build a team as quick as what he'd done. Mm-hmm. So that really, really good Rangers side. Um, we deserve to win it, the, the title. We deserve to win it. So Henry scored a great goal. And then after that, it became a bit nervous because there's no noise coming from Canada. So you knew probably Rangers were winning at that point. Mm-hmm. And then Harold scores the, the goal that makes it at 2 0. And then so, so it was a mixture of probably relief. The, the, the job has been done. The ten in a row at that time, you thought probably never would happen again until this season. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, so the pressure of it was huge because you had sixty thousand in there demanding that you had to win. But that was a beautiful playing for Celtic. The, the pressure on you was was uh, was massive. And for how long did the celebrations go on into the night? Was it a, a well, late one? <laughs> oh yeah, that was. Um, do you know the big thing for that? that I always remember that, and it's a, it's, a, it's a silly thing. I remember that they were um, the celebrations were going great, and it was all starting to die down. And I remember sitting in the dressing room there, and uh, Paul McStay came in, and uh, and I remember Paul saying, "This why I said, kind of a word with you." None of knew Paul mm-hmm. uh, at that time, and uh, he, he came in, shook my eyes, and I just want to say, absolutely brilliant. And I thought Paul McStay. Because stay for me was one of the great Celtic players, captains in his day, Paul, and it, that meant a lot uh, for Paul to stay. He came in that that uh, right after the game and came in and saw me, and because uh, I probably played the same role as him, so mm-hmm. a little bit here and there either way, um, but it, it meant a lot because I thought Paul McStay was one of the, one of the greatest players that Scotland's produced. I guess it was almost like a kind of passage of rights of. Paul's era handing over to yourself to guide Celtic on for yeah. that sort of next period and we'll get into that and we'll talk about the kind of years under Martin O'Neill um, in a wee bit but during that period of time in Scottish football it was almost common for Scotland to qualify for major tournaments now this summer coming up will be 23 years since Scotland last played in a major tournament and I have to say I actually don't remember a lot of World Cup '98, so that's I'm really looking forward to this summer because yeah. this will be the first one I really remember. But that qualification campaign, it was almost a case of Scotland were just really expecting to get through. You were drawn against Austria, Sweden, Estonia, and Belarus, and the, there's the game that every Scotland fan will remember, and it was the one team in Tallinn. Tell us a bit more about that. What was that experience like? It was weird. Uh... Uh, obviously you're saying that the Scotland team expected to qualify they, they expected to qualify because they had really good players mm-hmm. that year uh, Gary McAllister John Collins Colin Calderwood Tommy Boyd Gorham McCoy they had a really good side at that at that time so uh, was it was it a thing of the, everybody expected they expected Scotland to be running about it anyway I think that, that was the thing and the Stoner game was we got wind of it that they might not turn up that that morning. Not the way the, the game. It, it, there was a death of fans. There was, there was nobody really there. We thought, well, wonder, wonder what's going on. We could expect the team. And anyway, we had to get ready as normal, just mm-hmm. like normal. The referee 
done the same things. The referee checked your boots and everything like that. And we had to walk out and line up. And uh, I think John, John and somebody else, maybe Dan Jackson, maybe took centre. The referee blew the whistle and that was it, finished. And uh, it, but you had to do it right as if you were preparing for the game. Mm-hmm. He, made it, he made us get ready, he made us, he checked the boots, he, we walked out the tunnel, we went into the pitch, took centre, and then they never, they were there. But there was, and then they moved the game to play again in, in Monaco, I think they moved it in Monaco. Mm-hmm. The replay was doing 0 at that time, but um, whereas maybe. FIFA should have um, or UEFA should have said no Scotland get three points or maybe that was the big kind of talking point wasn't it it was the the kind of president of the UEFA at the time um, the Swedish man I think it was Johan Andersson his name was was determined for Scotland and Estonia to replay that game and a lot of criticism was put up there because they believed he was doing it to best Sweden's interest to help them qualify as well looking back on it now do you think Scotland should have got the three points for that or was there something kind of underhand at play? 100% we should have got the three points. That, that, if that happened now, you'd have got three points if a team doesn't turn up. So I think there was a dispute uh, on them with a, with a bonus system or whatever it was, Estonia. So it's their prerogative of not to turn up if they don't want to play. But uh, you have to have turned and say Scotland got three points. We shouldn't have been made to go to Monaco and play 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 them. Whether that was a draw, whether we won or not, we shouldn't have been made to go to Monaco. And plus, get Scotland fans to go to Estonia, then Scotland fans to go to, to Monaco. So that it wasn't it wasn't right. It should have been Scotland should have got three points for. And thankfully, it didn't really come to much. The, although it was not the three points, it was only the one point. Scotland did qualify, although the last day of the campaign was certainly an interesting one. Basically, looking at the table, Scotland had to equal or better Sweden's result to get through. Scotland were at home that day to Latvia at Celtic Park. Another last day triumph at Celtic Park. You must have been starting to get used to those. <laughs> that was sure brilliant that day. That day. I, mean, I, mean, I think the, the big game was beating Austria at home at Park as well. I think that was a huge game. Mm-hmm. Was, beating Sweden at Ibrox was a, was a good game. Too. But um, Belarus away and Gary, Gary McCarthy scored a penalty in the and the, the field was terrible in Belarus and Gary scored a penalty to beat them 1-0 but the, the, that game you're talking about the Latvia game I, th- I think did Gordon Dewey score that day did Gordon he did yep Gordon yeah, scored, scored that yeah. and the noise at Parkhead that day was unbelievable because the work had been done and going right to the last day he says or the last game was an incredible thing it was, an, it was a great achievement but you, you would never have thought 23 years later that um, that would be the last tournament they ever qualified for. And tw- I mean, 23 years ago, we're talking France 98, a mm. fantastic tournament, albeit, and you opened up against the defending champions in Brazil. Now, you've mentioned playing for Dortmund, you're lined up against these Champions League winners, these World Cup winners, and there was a bit of that experience in the Scotland squad. They definitely played against that level before. I don't yeah. think you'll have that this summer when the team lines up, because there's maybe only some of the Celtic players and Kieran Tierney and Andy Robertson that have played at that level. But you guys yeah. had the experience, so was there no fear going into that game? Did you really think you could beat them? Uh, I think for us it was, it was a free hat. Really, it was mm-hmm. a free I mean, oh, if you're not going to win the World Cup, well, the next best thing is to open it against the, the, arguably one of the greatest nations to ever play the game. So, and the team that they had, 
it was all that day. Dear, oh dear, I mean, it was, it, 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 they were absolutely star-studded, you know, and um, playing in the Stade de France, the new stadium, was a great a great thing for us, but the, we were so unlucky, really unlucky, you know, to get, get a result from it. But it's a point, and don't go by Tommy. If the ball has Tommy Boyd in the chest, it falls into Jim Lane's arms. Because mm-hmm. it has in the, the joint, the shoulder, and the arm, it ricochets and it gives him the bounce. But we, I think we should have had a penalty, another penalty, with a, with a free kick. Mm-hmm. You know, the with the hand, and they, they never gave us two penalties against Brazil. So <laughs> well, we, we, we ran them close, but that was a great, that was a great occasion. A great, um, it was just a great game. It was just, we just pulled up short. And that just seemed to be the sort of the thing about Scotland in 98, they just fallen short, um, not quite getting over the line. In that last game against Morocco, that mm. was something that kind of just summed up the whole tournament, wasn't it? It just wasn't to be for Scotland. No, it wasn't. I mean, never, to be fair, we never performed in that game. We never played well. Um, I know Craig got sent off, but I don't think we played well in St. Etienne. We never, we never, I don't think we turned up against, so I think they beat us fair and square. The game against Norway, the second game, we absolutely battled Norway. We should have won. Mm-hmm. I mean, we absolutely ran over the top of them against the good Norway side. But the heat that day, they were, they last were doing the cramp. They couldn't, and the, the atmosphere that night, or that day, was was absolutely unbelievable in Bordeaux. The Norway game, we should have won. Morocco, Norway, in my opinion, I didn't think we deserved to win. Going back to that Norway game, there was a sort of contentious decision which almost decided whether Scotland would be going through to the next round or not. And it was the free kick awarded for the foul on Gordon Jury. Now, looking back on it now, if you'd VAR, that's given, that's a penalty, that's inside the box. Did yeah. that sort of spur the boys on to say, look, we're kind of playing against maybe more than 11 men here? No, at, at that time, at that time, I don't think we... You, you took the decisions of what they were. You never really, okay, you'd have an argument there for me or linesman or whatever, like anything else, but when you overstall it in. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Okay, let's go to VR because it also wasn't, wasn't in line at that time. But yeah, it's, but that's the era we played in. The era was VR wasn't there. This era... VR checks if the if the wind's going the right direction. So there's that many things VR interrupts. In my day, it was we play okay, mm-hmm. you don't have a decision, but you take it in the chin and you and you go again with it. So obviously, no one would have thought it would be 23 years before Scotland made it to a major tournament. But coming away from that was just a case of 
right boys put this one behind us and concentrate on the next campaign yeah I, I mean you I think we, we I think we should have done better in the Euros I think in the Euros was the following tournament I think it was ourselves in Belgium we were beating Belgium 2-0 at Hamden and they get one cent off and we're absolutely cruising against them and then they, they, they pull it back to two each in the last minute last last head of the ball and then we have to go to Belgium and they beat us 2-0 and that was that was a tournament I thought was uh, that one that one probably got away for us but that game certainly hurt us the Belgium game and obviously looking forward to this season's competition this summer's competition do you think the boys have got a chance of getting out of that group? Uh, every, every game's tough when you play international but I think looking at the team at the minute it, it, it's a really good stable team really solid they all work for each other which I think is really really important the big thing for me is not having the fans if there's only a number of fans I don't know what the the rules are up in, up in Glasgow where they're going to let the full it's twelve and a half thousand. I think you can get in for the game. Twelve and a half is it? It's in a fifty thousand seater stadium. Is it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Like when you have a full Hamden, that'll be that would be brilliant for them. You, you know to play. They've got to go to Wembley. And there's only twenty two thousand or whatever it is. Three thousand Scottish fans. It's not the same. But that's the world we live in at the moment. You can't change that. But I guess. Having some fans in is, is better than nothing. Can can they go to the group? Yeah, they can. They can because that, I think they're I think they're a, they're a decent side. Yeah, and we obviously everyone here at a state of mind wishes the Scotland team all the best for this summer's competition, um, and I'm sure we'll be covering it. So keep an eye on that one. Just going back, but to what was maybe your most successful time in terms of winning trophies and picking up medals it was your time at Celtic under Martin O'Neill when he came into the team it's almost very similar to the situation that Celtic finds himself in now they're looking to rebuild they're looking to sort of put this platform together for the next couple of years what influence did Martin have when he came into the club and did anyone really expect the success that he could bring? Well, I think the, the, the expected success at Celtic is, is always there every day. Every day the people expect you to win. And that's the demand of the club. Did anybody ever think that it would go as well as what it did? Nobody knew. We, we, we needed somebody like the gaffer to come in and take the club with scuff the neck and, and drag it through. And he was, he was absolutely brilliant for us. We, we, we were terrible the year before. And um, we never been going at all the year before. We lose the league by twenty-one points, which was, mm-hmm. which was unacceptable. And um, the gaffer came in with Wally and Robbo and turned it right on his head and kept kept the good players there and, and bung ones in to help us. And, and it, it just took off. We just we became strong. We became unbelievably quick. We became an incredible dressing room. The team spirit and and the drive and the hunger was there and we, we were for the, for the years he, he was there I thought we were excellent and some people would say some of the best football that you played was under Martin O'Neill you won the Football Writers Player of the Year in 2002 you formed a really good partnership in the, the heart of midfield alongside Neil Lennon mm-hmm. and as difficult as this is for a lot of Celtic fans to kind of talk about you went on to have the best European run that Celtic's had probably since the 1970 um, mm. final. 
getting all the way to Seville and then just coming up short. Before we talk about the final, tell us about the build-up and the kind of run that you went on. Obviously, you scored against Stuttgart. Would that be your highlight of that kind of run? Uh, I just thought they were a really good side. I thought they were really strong. Whether we're ever going to be be a Bayern or, or, or Dortmund or a Juve, nobody will ever know that. But we we took Juve on in the Champions League and beat them at Parkhead. We took Bayern on that draw. So anybody ever came to Parkhead was always going to find it difficult against mm-hmm. them because of the atmosphere and the team we had. The run we had was... I just think we had a great belief in us that it doesn't matter who comes to Parkhead, we're going to win. And I said, it doesn't matter who came there. didn't matter what team came there. We had that belief that we're going to win. And the gaffer had that installed in that and everybody where everybody would run through a wall for each other. And, and that was, gave us a platform of success where we had that and you had Henry who would score for us at nothing. And, and it's, it's, it's a great saying, you're only as good as your strikers. And Larson was one of the best. So when you look at Henry and the goals that he scored for us, and, and I'm talking Henry way back in Bim Janssen's time, Henry mm-hmm. had done it when, 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 when I first came back as well. So we had a striker who, who could score goals out of nothing uh, for us, but we had some really talented footballers that knew the game and, and with a manager that, that gave us the belief that we could obviously win every single game. You had that run all the way to Seville and you played Jose Mourinho's Porto in the final. A lot of players that have been interviewed since have said they've not actually watched the game back. Are you in that camp? Have you seen it back? No, I've not watched it. No, no, no. no I'm not, I'm not, not watched it. And people always say, try and know how many you get in football, but that's, that's, that's probably my biggest regret is not winning that. Because it was, it was arguably, and I know it's different eras and I would never compare my era with Celtic team against the, the, the current era or Gordon Sackens era or Ronnie Dyler's era or anything like that but I think yeah if you look at my era it would be hard pushed to, for any day, day teams to play against us uh, that era I think we're only second to the Lisbon Lions mm-hmm. they're up there on a pedestal with ourselves but the Martin, Martin O'Neill era I think comes comes second people probably beg to differ with it but that's just my opinion on it. And, I mean, it's a fantastic occasion. So many Celtic fans travelling mm. over to Seville, turning the city green and white. And you mentioned before you had the fantastic nights against Bayern Munich, against Juventus. A lot of people expected Celtic to kick on from then and to become one of the real powers of European football. Mm. Why do you think that is that it didn't happen? Finance. But it's easy. It's an easy question. The finances of Celtic... Had got the exact same finances as the big European hitters. Uh, TV money, Sky money, it's no stopping it. It's no stopping it. And, and if Celtic ever got to the Premier League, which I don't know would ever happen, you give them a few years to find their feet, the finances the same, there's not going to be any bigger. I know that for a fact. Through experience, I know it for a fact. The club is massive. And, and you'd have to build another tier on the stadium. To, um, to compensate the amount of fans who'd like to come and watch it because it's a global club but it's, it's, it's an easy it's a, an easy question the answer is, is finances that's that's all it is that's different if they're playing a different league and they finance everybody else it's, that, that's an easy question When you look at it then do you think that the side that you are a part of were 
overachieving or do you just think that from that point on it just got daft compared to money and football and the wages and the transfer fees just got to the level where Celtic couldn't keep up? No, I don't, I don't think we overachieved. I don't, I don't think that. We certainly never underachieved in that, that run. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, we just fell short in that, that final through yeah, one or two more reasons that, 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 that could have happened for us. But we, we just fell short in that. And, and, but we were a hell of a side. We were a hell of a side. And I don't think I should ever under underestimated we were a hell of a side and I don't think many too many teams would have liked to play against us Just a kind of retort a kind of theoretical one here even because you, you couldn't really do it but if you compared the Borussia Dortmund side that won the Champions League against that Seville side and you mm. played each other who do you think would have came out on top? I thought, okay, here's a, here's a, a, a diplomatic. <laughs> if it was a two-legged affair, I think Dortmund would win. And, uh, if it's one-legged, the park gets Celtic one. If it's one-legged, Dortmund, Dortmund would win. <laughs> so <laughs> the Dortmund team, well, as I said before, was it was incredible. I, I think they, I played with two great, great teams, different from each other, many aspects. One was incredibly high in the highest league, one of the highest leagues in Europe at that time in Bundesliga and won the highest honour. One was playing in a country where it's no viewed as strong as any other countries like England or, or Germany or Italy. Mm-hmm. But the club is huge and the demand of it is huge and, and just falling short. It's a really difficult one to answer. The two, two great clubs which are probably really honoured to play for. And I'm sure there'll be some smart computer person out there that will try and put these two teams together for a, a FIFA yeah. compilation of that. But definitely tag us in the video if that's the case. After the the kind of disappointment of not winning the UEFA Cup, mm. coming back to Celtic, you kind of had a, a bit less of a more important role to play at the club. You weren't playing as many games. Was your eye already at that point into your next move and maybe into the coaching side of things? Yeah, because I, I was getting nearly 35. And uh, I knew I knew that I didn't have much left. The biggest thing for football is admitting when you when you know your time's up, really. And I knew that, but I never I never felt any ill feeling towards myself, thinking I want to play as long as I can. But I didn't want to go down the levels and and do that. I didn't want to not enjoy a sport that gave me great moments. So I knew my time was coming to an end, and. and and um, actually Steve Walford asked me would I come into the coaching side of it and help the first team and I, and I, I wasn't sure at the time because it, that, that meant I was leaving the guys that I played with to get into coaching and that sort of thing but I helped at the under 15s and it was Tommy Burns that actually said to me about it and I went in with Danny Craney at the time and, and, and really enjoyed that with the kids at that time I really enjoyed that that time uh, so I had my Probably one eye on that that side at that time, but I knew I knew my career. Twenty years, an incredible, incredible career. So I knew, but I think that's a, that's the hardest thing is for any footballer to say that times come an end and people remember you for what you were and not what you are. That that was that was important. I've seen some videos out there, and I remember being at a game. Uh, I believe it was against Livingston when the floodlights went out. 
and up on the big screen at Celtic Park, you used to get the sort of the trailer videos of what was on Celtic TV. And I think it was uh, a day in the life of yourself and Henrik, it was at the time, the, yeah. the man over my shoulder here. And one of the clips I always remember is the two of you having a sort of pool competition. Uh, <laughs> was that yeah. kind of, was it maybe a pool career that was up on the tables uh, instead okay. of a coaching career? <laughs> Every morning, me and Henrik used to play pool. Every morning. And um, I go that competitive that whoever lost had to make a coffee in the morning for, for each other and it became, <laughs> it became unbelievable competitive and uh, Larson was absolute rubbish at pool right and then he get better and better the more he played it and all that and uh, honestly God their games they be, their games became incredibly <laughs> every morning it was every morning we were probably in there about eight, half eight or something in the morning and we used to play that until uh, until we had to go and get changed for training and uh, but that, that's when it became competitive was whoever, whoever lost made the coffee and whoever lost used to go away in a, a straw shut the door and, and keep the other ones down <laughs> two sugars sending away two sugars and you just hear them saying so, so that, it became but that, that's when you have a good spirit and you have a good team together that, these sort of things happen and who generally won was it yourself uh, or was he, it Henrik he wasn't it, it, there's no one spe- Swedish player that plays pool. There's no, t- there's no chance. If Larson if phones you up and he says there is a Swedish player, then I, I need to know about it. But no, there's no way. There's no way he's beat me at pool. No chance. Oh, definitely. That was certainly something that um, caught my eye, especially as a youngster, idolising yeah. guys like yourselves and yeah. um, that that kind of camaraderie. It obviously helps build the team morale. But I mean, I guess if you're kind of playing maybe Rangers at the weekend on the Friday morning, don't want Henrik storming out. <laughs> so uh, did no, you kind of get it a wee bit easier on him then? Uh, no, we, we took it. It, it didn't become a real competitor, so it didn't. It was just a thought of making each other a coffee. Thing. Do, I, do I make him a coffee this morning? You know, then probably vice versa. When he got to the door, I would shout, two sugars, Henry, for you. And he would do the same to me, and I'd go in that room. You know what I mean? So, but now we, we, had, we had some brilliant, brilliant times. And then obviously you moved on and you finished your career at Livingston, and that's mm-hmm. where the coaching side of things came into it. Um, how difficult is that, that kind of final game when you just know? I'm not going to pull these boots on again. I'm not going to play professional football again. My, my career's now coming to an end. That must be one of the most difficult days in your life. Yeah, because you know when it's gone, it's never coming back. You know, mm. it's never it's never there. The, the mind sees it, but the legs can't take you there. And, um, and I think because of the standard that I did play and the things that I won, I never really wanted to drop below that. And um, I was always used to kind of winning trophies and medals I didn't want to drop below that and that's that was a big thing for me but once that's gone it's just never coming back to you don't, don't matter who you are it, it's one thing you never beat time mm-hmm. time always beats you as a footballer because you've only got a short span that you can you can play the game so uh, and that's where I say going back to your point earlier on about the mental health issues is what does a footballer do or, or a sports person when they, when they finish it and, uh, mid 30s so it's really difficult really really difficult but I was fortunate that I went into the other side of it and um, yeah so I'm, I'm very very lucky and I think everyone can agree that the kind of career after playing football has went 
almost as well as as it did on the park. Yeah. You've been introduced into the Norwich Hall of Fame after taking them up to the Premier League. You've been managing a couple of teams in the Premier League. Um, looking at it, you're you're only just past fifty now. You've yeah. managed over yeah. six hundred games. You're still relatively young in terms of managers. Yeah. How long do you think you've still got in this, and where do you think your next career move will be? I don't know how long you, you have in management with us. Again, that's an open book, really. Um, we, I look at Roy Hodgson and people like that who, in his 70s and still going strong. It's incredible achievement. So I like Ferguson, Arsene Wenger. I've had some great meetings with Angelotti, Pep, Jürgen. Yeah, so I spoke to Antonio Conte. All great guys, managers in their own their own right. Uh, Roger Schmidt when he was at Leverkusen. I'd, I'd been everywhere talking to the guys and seeing their views on football and enjoyed that when I left Aston Villa. I enjoyed going in Europe and and seeing different managers and, and how they how they went about it. And it opens your eyes because it's a, it's an incredible thing when you go when I when I was fortunate to go and say to meet Carlo Angelo in Madrid or Pep and Bayern at the time or Jurgen at Dortmund at the time. So that in itself is an education on it, looking, going to see it. So regarding how long I'll do it for, nobody ever knows. I want to go back in, yeah. You really want to go back into it because as even though I'm just yeah, 51 at the minute, but I still want to go back into it and, and yeah, and get going again, yeah. Is that something you want to get back into immediately or are you looking to take a bit of time out to kind of assess the situation at the minute? No, at the minute, I'm, I'm easy at the minute because the season's nearly finished anyway. Whatever country you're in, the season's nearly finished. Maybe the next few months when it all starts to kick in again and hopefully lockdown eases a little bit more, you can start to travel and things like that, which, which will be nice. And then and hopefully get back in and hopefully it's, it's a good challenge. Whether or not this would be an option for you now, the Celtic job is currently available. I'm not saying that you'd be looking to take the job now, but if the opportunity was to come up in the future, is it something that would interest you? No, no. And, and the reason for that is because I'd, I'd eight, well, it was eight or nine unbelievable years there. And my life was, was Glasgow, that was my life. And uh, I would never want to ruin that. With, with, mm-hmm. with support with them um, I know what it's like as a footballer I don't know what it's like to manage or coach there but I certainly know the pressure of winning things there and I was fortunate to play in great sides that did win a lot of stuff there so would I want to ruin that? No I, mean, I, I love going back I've, I've only ever been back once in 16 years and I've done, done that the other week against Rangers so uh, the, the only time I'll probably ever be back at the is, is uh, probably when, when I get an invite or maybe I can ask to go and watch a game or something like that but I wouldn't want to tarnish tarnish what I had on. And what about potentially the Borussia Dortmund job if that was to ever come up? <laughs> no, that, that'd be that's in a way on another scale again that, that is the same thing I, I love the club and some great unbelievable moments great time there and everything that that, that somebody from Scotland could never wish for what that club gave me so and again the support that I had for the fans you always very rarely do you get into a club and it ends brilliantly very I don't know any managers that probably get that 
maybe Pep, Pep is probably the only one that's, that's uh, on top of that. Uh, Jürgen, but that's, that's a really unique thing that, you know, but mm-hmm. and you never know where Magidio could take it. You, you never ever know. But going back to Celtic and, and what I know of it and the way it was, as I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to ruin that. Well, I hope that we see you back in management very soon, Paul. I think you've got a lot to offer to the game um, and I'm sure there'll be a couple of opportunities that arise over the summer once clubs look at what they're going to do for next season. But over the summer, obviously Scotland will be playing in this major tournament, the Euro 2020, playing in 2021, which is confusing enough as it is. The boys that are going to be picked for the squad, they'll be looking to guys like yourself who are the last... Scottish player, players sorry, to have ever played in such a major tournament if any of them's listening right now which we hope they are what was the one piece of advice you would give them ahead of this summer? One one <laughs> win the games if you can get through get through the, the, the rounds I think that's or the, or the group you enjoy it but you only enjoy it if you win that's what I was saying earlier on in the programme where the game's about winning, professional sports about winning, and the guys will enjoy it a hundred times more if they win. They'll not enjoy it if they lose, lose, lose. That, that's not enjoyable. People say, oh, we took part in the tournament. You just hope the mindset is we're, we, we want to win. We, 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 we'll have a great time if we win. Scotland as a, as a country will have a great time. I mean, hopefully, I'll be Nico and Glasgow, Edinburgh, or Dundee have big screens in the in the squares and you can watch it and I mean if Scotland won I mean dear dear that would be that would be great it would be so great if you lose but that, again that, but that's just me that's just my my thing of winning is, is, is enjoy it when you, if you win you enjoy it more well we certainly do hope here at a state of mind that Scotland can boogie their way through that group and Paul it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Football Insomnia today if you are watching do give us a like subscribe to the channel you'll see more content like this coming up but Paul thank you once again for joining us on the Football Insomniac No problem thank you iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.